from Washington. This is the HPS Macrocast with Hamilton Place Strategies and Markets Policy Partners. Good morning. It's Friday, August 13th. And why don't we have spooky music to play when we say when we're doing a macro cast on Friday, August the 13th? But it is Friday, August the 13th. So start off with an ominous start for uh, Secretary Pelosi and uh, you know, Democrats trying to execute the, the two step on the uh, infrastructure bill with a letter from um, nine how moderate House Democrats uh, saying that they were not going to vote on uh, the budget resolution until the uh, infrastructure bill just that just cleared the Senate last uh, this over the weekend is uh, signed into law. And uh, guys, Tony Fratto from Hamilton Place Strategies, John Fagan and Brendan Walsh of Markets Policy Partners here on the Macrocast. I mean, um, if the <laughs> through, yeah, through it, but it's what, what we've been kind of saying all the time where everyone's been focused on the Senate and the Senate is probably the easy one because you just have to convince two people, you know, yeah. but, but the house is unruly and they only have three, three seats majority, you know, so three seats, uh, swing majority. Um, so this is nine members. So it seems pretty solid. Then you have a large group of progressives, um, you know, who say they're not going to take up the infrastructure bill until um until the uh the 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 social infrastructure bill uh the reconciliation bill is passed and uh so it seems like we're at loggerheads um in the congress on spending i you know guys i don't want to spend too much time on this because i know we're going to spend a lot more time on it when we come back this is just just to update macrocast listeners on where things are this morning and you know your you know your your view uh market policy partners view is that um you know this this is part of the toing and froing of this legislation and we will get to um you know we are still going to get to substantial spending in both of these areas if not the same number on the reconciliation but that's where you still are yeah i think so Go ahead, John, but it, it basically because the it, you're shooting yourself in the foot if you don't pass this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that, uh, that's the bottom line. And clearly, the moderates are trying to get trying to get uh, probably some some pull. There are only nine of them. The progressive caucus is bigger and uh, and is probably, you know, nine is is, as you say, a pretty solid number. They have a three seat majority. And uh, the question really is uh, now can can Speaker Pelosi uh, bring something to the table that uh, that that convinces them to go along and uh, whether what what is that what do they need to have is there something else that uh, is behind this uh, that they can compromise on and uh, and get a little something more uh, to to bring home that's that's really the question you know we've had the we've had the house moderates uh, pushing for the salt uh, cap uh, removal and uh, and other other aspects. It, it's th- there's obviously been fracture and division. Um, the uh, the progressive caucus has stayed pretty you know has stayed pretty in line with the Biden administration, uh, but it's it's going to be a real test of uh, Speaker Pelosi's deal making abilities. Uh, and you know we're not in a position where we where we would bet against her. Uh, especially when you have a very effective White House uh, outreach under President Biden, who is, yeah. I think he's very adept. He's a, he is, he's of the Hill. He knows that world. And, uh, and he is certainly not 
not shy about uh, wading in on this. This is, as Brendan said, simply a must-have for the Democrats. Uh, it's it's a delicately choreographed procedure uh, going forward, but we think that there's there's going to be ultimately a resolution whether you know it is the, the the exact kind of numbers that we have right now we doubt that it's going and, to be and just to clarify both are yeah but both are a must have you can't have the, the republicans agree to a bipartisan infrastructure deal and not pass it once you pass that you also have to then pass your own that has the priorities of your party in it <clears throat> yeah that would be shocking i mean yeah look. and the the pay fors are all in the follow on bill and it is it is there's clearly a lot of you know, there's there's a lot of back and forth here. And uh, and it's just it's hard to imagine that the Democrats in the House would blow this whole thing up um, without, you know, I mean, basically in in a in a way that just would simply torpedo the Biden administration. I think this is really yeah, and, 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 and maybe, and maybe torpedo. Yeah. And torpedo their, you know, the uh, the party themselves. Look, I, I don't want, there's no question that this has elevated or, you know, it has lowered the likelihood that both of these things get done. You know, has it lowered it enough that we still would say it's not, you know, odds on that, uh, that they both get done? No, but it has added a level of uncertainty that they might not get done. And, you know, someone, it's a game of chicken and either the house progressives or the house moderates are going to have to blink, uh, or find some kind of negotiated solution. And it's not obvious where the saddle point is for that that kind of uh, agreement between them right now, but maybe you know they go home for a hot summer and and come back and uh, maybe they they find some solutions in uh, in September. But the but in terms of you know the the uh, you know why we all feel so strongly that substantially the both of these bills will substantially get done, um, even if the number is smaller in reconciliation, is that. You know, I, I don't know what the chances are of the House keeping uh, of, of Democrats keeping the House and Senate if they pass both of these bills. Right. I'm pretty certain I know what their chances are if they don't pass these bills. Yeah, it's, it's, right. it's zero. Zero. It's zero. Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's get to uh, other more, you know, the, the things that we plan to come and talk about yeah. today. We, I think we were hoping to and not, I'm not like by the construction bill today. Yeah. I'm not a political genius, but I do know that most elected officials tend to like to get re-elected. <laughs> base case, right? Base case. That's our base case. They want to get re-elected. Yeah. Um, they don't, you know, in in China, they don't deal with elections quite the same. <laughs> yeah, she gave up on those. What was it, five years ago? <laughs> right. Yeah, she doesn't. She isn't out running for re-election. Um, but he is certainly exerting his control over uh, over the economy, and it is having significant um, significant uh, economic consequences for their markets, for their companies. Uh, for their long-term economic outlook, for the relationship between the United States and China, which uh, we should we should note, you know, I think today or this week marks the uh, you know one-year anniversary of the close of uh, the, the 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 China-U.S. Yep. agreement. You know, they were supposed to have had um, meetings, 
you know, the formal, the, you know, the formal, uh, you know, uh, close uh, every six months, uh, there have been no meetings uh, to talk about the next phase uh, and to assess the first phase. The first phase has not gone really well, albeit with a, um, uh, you know, COVID intervening. Um, a lot of the tariffs remain in place. Uh, it doesn't seem like trade, any kind of trade discussions are, are on the horizon. Uh, there are discussions on other issues, but not so much on uh, on trade. And at the same time, you have the Chinese leadership um, that is really laying strong hands on its technology companies in particular, but also companies like, you know, they basically turned the entire uh, tutoring business in China into a nonprofit. And, yeah. uh, and in the case of at least one company, uh, you know, Wall Street, uh, education, um, China, the China, the, you know, the China company of Wall Street uh, education, which is a language learning um, company that if you go around, if you're on, you know, China, Beijing, Shanghai, you see them, you know, you see them all around. They teach business English to, to, uh, to Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese people, very successful company. Um, but it appears it's on, you know, it's in uh, uh, going to be entering bankruptcy here pretty soon. Um uh, and even it, yesterday, they went after the insurance sector. So yeah. really, basically, it's any company that has any sort of influence on its citizens, right? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's a Beijing is obviously conducting a massive campaign against its own private sector. Yeah. And uh, this is something that fits into uh, into the narrative that the U.S. regulators and the Biden administration, the Trump administration before them, have put forward about China, that this is a place where, you know, investing in Chinese assets the, is fraught with risk, given the fact that these companies have no enforceable property rights in their home market, aside from what the Chinese Communist Party decides to grant them on any given day. And uh, this is something that, you know, the regulators in the U.S. had come at the, the China question. This is a longstanding issue. Uh, U.S.-China relations uh, deteriorated under President Trump, uh, but that the, the the frictions were growing uh, even before that. There was a lot of loss of momentum of the convergent, the so-called convergence thesis, um, as uh, as President Xi canceled the term limits, and uh, and it became pretty clear that the longstanding belief in Washington D.C. that had animated a lot of these policies, which was the richer China gets the more they will become like us and, uh, yes. and absorb Western values and, and become responsible stakeholders in the global, uh, it, you know, in the global community and, and uh, more democratic, uh, you know, more, more capitalistic and so forth. And uh, that argument has been completely lost uh, over the last few years. We expected the Trump administration uh, to 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 be tough on China, and they certainly followed through on that. Uh, but you know, we were we'd had a longstanding call that the Biden administration was going to be just as tough, if not tougher, on the uh, on the, uh, on Beijing, and that's really borne out. Uh, we've seen a change in prioritization of where to push on China. We've seen a different style, obviously, but the Biden administration is, in some ways, really much more. You know, fundamentally opposed to a lot of what China does, the the humanitarian aspects. The Trump administration obviously acted on that front, but it was pretty clear that President Trump wasn't 
wasn't it wasn't as an emotive an issue uh, for him. He was far more focused on the trade side. Uh, the Biden administration has a lot of um, wherewithal in the multilateral space uh, that the Trump administration didn't have to marshal our allies to counter China's uh, rise on various fronts. It's a it, it's a it's a very you know it's a it's a trend that takes you into some very challenging places if you extrapolate. Um, but what we didn't expect was Beijing to basically make the argument uh, for the U.S. regulators. And uh, in a way, I, I have to say, like you know, I mean, I think that's you know, so that's that's a view, right? Is that uh, you know that uh, the big is bad argument, uh, you know, and uh, I, but I think there's a distinctly different character to what the Chinese are doing, and I have my I have my problems with the anti-big. Uh, antitrust um, uh, bent of now, you know, the Biden administration, you know, right now where the FTC and DOJ are going on these uh, issues. I, I actually think these companies have been really, you know, like, you know, we, we, we apparently have um, uh, five giant monopolies who all fight and fiercely compete with each other, you know, which is, sounds like a contradiction in terms. And I would assert that in fact, it is a contradiction. In terms. <laughs> okay, let's just set that aside for a second. There are, they do have us regulators are. Also, working, all, all those companies uh, are basically give their stuff away for free. Also. Yeah. <laughs> US regulators are like, I do believe them that they are interested in competition that I do believe that that is the, the inspiration for uh, their activity uh, when they when they look at U.S. Um, U.S. Uh, technology companies and others, I do believe that's their inspiration. I think the Chinese are we welcome the language on competition, but what they're really after is the concern that these companies are becoming or threaten to becoming global, large and non-Chinese, they yeah. become global companies really and not Chinese yep. companies anymore that they can control. And, and, and so I would just say that, like, that, you know, the, the thesis of going back 20 and 25 years ago that, you know, the, as these companies, you know, as China has uh, market, you know, leans into a market economy, creates companies that act, uh, you know, in, in the uh, in, uh, in, in healthy capitalism and grow and try to compete for market share and customers, they're going to become better companies and they're going to find out that living that way, you know, operating your business that way is more conducive with uh, you know liberal democratic institutions than it is with communism. I actually think what we're seeing right now is evidence of that. This is exactly what the Chinese are seeing. They're worried that Alibaba and Ant and TikTok and Didi and all these other companies are becoming more like their global and Western competitors than Chinese. And they are going to have to, you know, as companies operating that way, you're going to have to make, uh, you know, you know, uh, treat data different ways and treat property different ways. And that was, this was a threat to the Chinese regime. The other thing that happened this week, the Chinese did, is that they signaled they're, they're going to, they're going to be eliminating certain karaoke songs <laughs> to be played in karaoke bars in China. Right. There are going to be songs that you are not allowed to sing at karaoke bars in China. 
This is a heavy-handed state. That has nothing to do with, or a heavy-handed a heavy handed regime. That has nothing to do with competition. They're not worried about the competition for songs. They're worried about what you're thinking and what is influencing the way you think about, um, you know, your economic situation, your political um, and cultural life. And that's a, that's a distinctly different thing, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of commentary saying Beijing is going to rue the day they did this to their private sector. They are strangling the golden goose. And what made them successful over the last few years, over the last few decades, really, and uh, and infused the the regimes prior to Xi with uh, with validity and with uh, and and with power, really was economic growth, and uh, and they don't have a source of legitimacy that really can compete with that. Well, President Xi's source of legitimacy is very much uh, nationalism. And, you know, there was an understanding, obviously, when President Xi came in that the breakneck growth, that just isn't sustainable for the long term. And so another source of legitimacy uh, that they're focused on is clearly that, you know, the the (laughs) geostrategic competition. And one of the kind of classic tropes about China in the world, at least in the modern world, is that China, modern China has a hard time projecting its power abroad because it spends so much of its resources and energy holding itself together. Yep. And, you know, that the typical form, the typical data that people trot out is the spending on internal mainland security versus the, you know, standing army and Navy and that sort of stuff. It's wildly disproportionate, at least in the estimates of the data that people can find. Seems, seems that uh, way. Yeah. yeah. And so this is, this is another example of that on the, in the economic sphere where, the difficulty of the, the internal contradiction of keeping the, those Chinese companies on side with regard to the Chinese Communist Party at home uh, really is, is an impingement on their activities overseas. And, uh, and so they're caught between a rock and a hard place with Washington and Beijing uh, both squeezing them. It's a, it's a challenging situation, but I think the most, the most troubling thing is when, when you do extrapolate, if you do draw the dotted line of these trends. Where does it go? And uh, it's going, you know, pretty rapidly in a very challenging and, and decoupling direction. Uh, that's, that's problematic um, and, uh, and certainly infused with risk uh, for the- uh, no, That's for the a question I, I have for you on this too, and for both of you guys on this is, is that, I mean, look, I mean, you know, sort of our instinct is we look at it and we say, um, you know, these companies- uh, if you're thinking about the profitability of these companies going forward, you might say, well, you know, that's going to stunt their growth. They're not going to be as, you know, they're not going to be as profitable over time. Uh, at the same time, they're in a giant market. Um, you know, it's, it, you know, if you are, you know, if you are DD, will you stop being successful if you only focus on China and maybe a couple of other uh, uh, countries, like will you cease to be a really successful company? I mean, you can keep that going for a pretty long time. A lot of these companies can keep it going for a very, very long time. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. Like, I think Ant Financial is a good example. Ant mm-hmm. Financial is really a one-stop financial shop. You can get insurance, you can get payments, you can get banking. Super app. It, it's a super app. Yeah. But on the flip side, all of that information is something that a totalitarian communist government would love to have. So Ant Financial will be really successful just within China. 
but it's really just going to be a state-run financial app, you know? And, and you, you, you're signing up to give, let the government know literally everything that you're doing uh, 24 hours a day. And some of the other, some of the other factors, when we talk about risks, uh, Chinese, China-centric risks to the global economy and the global financial system, we also talk about the debt, the legacy debt issues. Mm-hmm that are most prominently <laughs> featured in Evergrande, the highly levered property developer, and Huarong, the state-run uh, uh, asset management, bad asset management company. And uh, they're in, the, the Huarong is obviously, you know, in line for a bailout of some kind, but nobody knows really how, what, to what degree. And there are a lot of questions about Evergrande. They've managed to keep pulling rabbits out of hats uh, whenever they have big debt rollovers and so forth, but these their assets are trading at very stressed levels, and it's a it's a concerning situation. Uh, the other the other aspect that we bring up is Hong Kong. Hong Kong is increasingly turning into just another Chinese city. Mm. The magical the magic of Hong Kong wasn't just that it was <laughs> it wasn't just that it was a really cool city with great food amazing entrepreneurial spirit. And uh, it was because that was infused with a rule of law yeah. that you could depend upon. That is not the case or increasingly not the case anymore. And, and, and uh, so much of Hong Kong is financial firms, which can just move to uh, Singapore overnight, you know? And, you know, we think about the the decision-making of, of foreign corporate uh, entities. And if you're going to be choosing to locate your business or to where to deploy resources, is Hong Kong, how does it compete with a place like Shanghai? And it exactly. I, I, I won't go to Hong Kong just, you know, for business or, or pleasure, because uh, I, I don't trust it, let, let alone set up a business there. Good God. It's, yeah. it's now very, it's, it's a much, it, it's, blurring the distinction, but it was quite clear, you know, what, what kind of resources as a foreign entity you would put in Shanghai or Beijing versus yeah. what you would put in Hong Kong. And it's certainly not, not nearly as clearly delineated anymore. Well, I think we're, I mean, we're going to keep track of these, you know, these movements in China and, uh, and, you know, and, and I mean, we're going to have to pay attention on how they shake out because I do think yeah. it is, it's a and, big, and that's it's what a, we kind of joke yeah. about, like if, if, if you're, if oh, you're not sure. exactly sure what the, the Chinese government's intent is, just, just ask them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one of the, anymore, you know, <laughs> yep. in the markets, obviously Chinese equities have been underperforming very dramatically this year. They've had a little bit of a bounce as the uh, people's bank of China shifted to an easing posture Recently, yeah. just as most of the rest of the global central banks are going right. the other way, this is not a particularly encouraging sign. And uh, the stock markets are the stock markets have been really taking a beating this year. But we're looking at the renminbi, and that is where, if if China is going to be engaging in a you know in a, in a further deterioration of, of growth. Uh, under this regulatory barrage from Beijing, plus the Delta variant, plus uh, just the organic slowdown that they've had uh, coming in train, you know, we think it'll it'll manifest in the renminbi. So we're watching that very closely. It's definitely worth paying attention to. Um, that's where I'd be looking. All right, guys. Let's um, uh, speaking of uh, speaking of values, currency values, in a way. We'll transition to inflation uh, when we come back after the break. We've got a little, a few clues on uh, on where inflation is heading. Uh, we'll come back. Uh, you're listening to the Microcast. 
Markets Policy Partners provides sophisticated financial market analysis that is independent, accessible, and actionable for a broad audience. Learn more at marketspolicy.com or visit them on Twitter at Markets Policy. All right, back on the macrocast, Brendan. Uh, we've got some uh, insights into inflation this week. What do, what do the numbers say? Yeah, so we got the uh, consumer price index and also the, the producer price index. So the consumer is what we as consumers spend and the producer price index is what companies, uh, how much their, their prices go up. So we, we had a little bit of, I mean, it was kind of in line, but um, the, the consumer price index uh, is starting to moderate. So a lot of the, the individual uh, uh, components that make up the, the CPI that were hugely affected by the, the pandemic, like used car prices and things like that, those are, those are moderating, which is having a, um, which is having uh, not a deflationary uh, effect on the, the CPI, but it, it's kind of going back to more normal rates. Uh, so the, the inflation rate is still 5.4% uh, on the headline. And then the core, which uh, we, we strip out the, uh, the, um, gasoline prices. Uh, that's at 4.3%. So this was a little bit of a, a, a tip of its cap to the, the, the Fed, and especially Chair Powell, who has argued that these prices are transitory. And it's because we locked down the economy and reopened, we're going to have a spike, and then it's going to go back to more normal uh, settings. So, but w- with this, we also had a little bit of debate this week within the, the FOMC, uh, not just the FOMC, but, but, but all the, uh, the, the regional bank presidents. Um, there, there is becoming a little more growing chorus uh, that would like to see the Fed begin its taper of its balance sheet in September, where uh, Powell and kind of the core of the, the FOMC has indicated that they would much rather see how the September and the October jobs report uh, look before it, because that's when we're going back to school, hopefully. That's when we're going back to work, hopefully. So uh, Powell's kind of argument is why rush it for for a month or two and and screw this whole thing up? Let's just make sure that we really are back to uh, the the projections that we we have in our outlook. Uh, But the, the inflation component of this is pushing, is helping, uh, Powell's argument. One of the things that we've seen is that the market indicators of inflation concerns, tips, break-evens, and so forth are have been very tame. Those peaked out in May and have come down very comfortably below uh, the levels that we saw then. We're yep. in, you know, we're we're at levels that are above two percent for the ten-year break-even, but only modestly, and that's not necessarily out of line with the Fed's revised inflation mandate, which is much more permissive of of modest overshooting, and uh, and even the five-year break-even, which is a little bit higher, is uh, is still below two point five percent or around there. It's a th- these are pretty comfortable levels and uh, and not particularly concerning. They haven't been trending higher. And uh, we're going to see some you know, we're going to see some data on uh, inflationary expectations in the uh, in the University of Michigan Consumer Survey today. Uh, so that'll be interesting. The, the the so the sensibility about inflation concerns in financial markets has really come off the boil here. And the really the attention has shifted toward growth concerns because yeah. of the Delta variant spread. Yeah. However, 
you know, there is still that that's that's not dis, to be dismissive of the price pressures that we're seeing. You know, we're talking with uh, with our, our uh, infrastructure industry specialist, uh, Norman Anderson, who did such a great job uh, explaining the state of play in that industry to us on a previous podcast. He is noting that th- these this is a low margin business and the input costs are high and it is really threatening the viability of some of the projects uh, in the in the current, you know, in the current arrangements uh, that they have. It, that is a that's a very significant issue, and and uh, the the input prices, as we saw this week, are still surprising to the upside, and that means a margin squeeze, and uh, and so the economic consequences of that, if that continues, are certainly worth monitoring. Well, we, we, and we will be doing that. I mean, I think everyone will be monitoring it uh, pretty pretty tightly over this you know <laughs> this month and the next couple months. I'm, um, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those things where, um, you know, we told you a storm was coming. The storm is a little bit stronger than than we thought it would be, uh, but we're in it. And it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to assess it when you're in the middle of it. You know, you don't know how long it's going to go and how uh, if you were wrong about the depth and strength of it, um, will are you will you be wrong about the duration of it as well? And we don't know that, you know, we have guesses on it. We have assessments based on what we're seeing in different parts of what factors into pricing pressure, uh, but we don't really know yet. And uh, I think, you know, a little more information over the next couple of months will help a lot. All right, guys, let's, uh, let's take a break and come back and look ahead to next week. You're listening to the Macrocast. Every two weeks, HPS measures U.S. adults' feelings and expectations for the economy. The HPS Civic Science Economic Sentiment Index accurately measures movements in overall national economic sentiment and provides a more sophisticated alternative to existing economic sentiment indices. To learn more, contact us through HamiltonPlaceStrategies.com. All right, back on the macrocast. Hey, guys, one of the things that we didn't get a chance to get into much um, uh, today, but we'll we definitely want to come back and talk about it next week. Is is talking about you know oil and OPEC and uh, Biden administration sent a letter out uh, encouraging them to you know to continue production, which caused all kinds of whirlwind attacks and recriminations uh, from different <laughs> quarters. Um, but it just v- very quickly, what do we have on? I mean, what's 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 going on here with um, um, this encouragement? Yeah, it seems like. OPEC is now getting getting leaned on by the uh, Biden administration at a time when they're obviously having a more difficult, a, a bigger challenge keeping the cartel members together and in line. We saw the UAE break ranks with uh, with Saudi and push for uh, increased production for themselves, basically around their own baseline. It was it was the Saudis ended up conceding. I think that this is as the pandemic progresses these supply curbs are going to have a harder time, uh, you know, being palatable to a lot of OPEC members at, at a time when, you know, we don't know the trajectory of growth. There are competing views on demand uh, that have come out this week between the OPEC itself and the International Energy Agency, which was significantly less optimistic than the OPEC projections. There's a lot going on. Uh, but while there's a lot going on, oil prices have remained really pretty steady. Uh, and, uh, and so there's been some, there's been some chop, but right now oil prices aren't playing along with the inflationary narrative, uh, in the way that some of the other commodity prices have. 
well, we'll we'll spend we'll we'll uh, spend a little bit more time diving into that more deeply um, as as we go forward. I think there's a lot to there's a lot to look at there. Brandon, what what's the data look like for next week? So, uh, re- uh, U.S. retail sales uh, will probably be the biggest uh, data point, especially with you know back to school um, shopping and and. <laughs> Most of the country now goes back to school like in early August, uh, all the South and everything, which I think is because football related. But uh, in the Northeast, we go back in uh, in the end of August, early September. Uh, then uh, on the central bank front, we'll get the the, the meeting, uh, the, the the minutes of the Fed's uh, July meeting, which will be important because at that they kind of indicated that they, they're not planning on doing tapering at the sem- at September. So we'll see what kind of message they want to convey to the market in those meetings uh, minutes. And then we get the uh, the Reserve Bank of Australia. And also, as we were talking about earlier, the People's Bank of China will have interest rate decisions. So the, the, the especially the Chinese will be a big deal. But also the, the uh, RBA has been a little bit more of a tightening. Um, yeah. But they they've had to lock down again because of the the Delta variant. So we'll see what what their message is. Yeah, it's been a strange time for them in Australia uh, right now. Um, New Zealand seems to be faring better, but but the Aussies are in a tough place. Yeah, still with uh, super low vaccination rates. Uh, I just saw it. it's thirty seven percent in Australia. Yeah, they just don't have much vaccine. <laughs> We'll have a lot to talk to talk about next week. Thanks for the uh, thanks for the show this week. Have a great weekend, and we'll be back on the Macrocast next next Friday. Thank you for listening to the HPS Macrocast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and share. 